Folks, today we enter into a set of beliefs that define Christianity. I'm speaking of the person and work of the Christ Jesus of Nazareth. Now, these beliefs center on what Christians hold to be biblical truths concerning the Holy Son of God. We will explore the biblical account of both the divine and human natures of Jesus and how the two equally exist in one person. We'll also examine the work of Christ through his ministry of teaching and atonement. We are exceedingly joyful that you have joined us today in a summary look at the doctrine of Christ. I'm Pastor Will Hunsaker, and you are listening to Brand of Man, building one disciple at a time for the cause of Christ, not through the agencies of man, but by the grace of God. Let us pray. Almighty and Holy Father, Praise be to your name in all things. We are filled with joy today, Father, in fellowship with you. We pray that you guide us through your Spirit as we study the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We give thanks for your eternal grace and mercy through him. So, to begin, we cannot fully appreciate the work Jesus performed without knowing who Jesus is. And as Scripture is our sole authority in all spiritual matters, we will use the revelations found there to first identify Jesus as God, his divinity. Now, there can be little dispute among Bible-reading Christians about Jesus ever specifically stating the phrase, I am God. He never specifically said that. However, there is an enormous amount of claims directly from Jesus and through the teaching of others in Scripture that indicate he could not be anything less than God. One classic example of this among biblical scholars is a verse from Matthew. As Jesus is explaining his parable of the tares of the field, he said this, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Matthew 13, verse 41. So here we see Jesus self-identifying as the Son of Man, which is a direct reference to the divine authority of the coming Messiah from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The angels Jesus refers to here as being his own are the angels of God. The reference there is from Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. In addition, Jesus refers to the kingdom out of which the angels come as his own. And these are all clear references to his divinity. A similar set of examples can be found in the Gospel of John, where Jesus uses a particular phrase eight times in reference to himself. The phrase is, I am, which is one previously used to identify God himself in the Old Testament. This is from Exodus. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus... You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15. Now, the most prominent, now there were eight of them, as I said, but the most prominent of the I am statements from Jesus comes from John 11. It says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
John chapter 11, 25 and 26. We can also read of Jesus forgiving the sins of humans in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, and his claim to be the Lord of even the Sabbath day in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28. That's the day we know from Genesis as the day God ceased his creative work and rested. We could go on for some time with many biblical references to Jesus' divinity from the book of Hebrews, from the teachings of Paul, the teachings of Peter and John, and most certainly the book of Revelation. However, Jesus' divinity is only part of his person. Now, let's take a look at what the Bible reveals about the human nature of Jesus. Just as the deity of Christ arouses vivid arguments from the world of skeptics concerning his divinity, his human nature often receives a much more subdued view as something obvious rather than mysterious. Nevertheless, the importance of Christ's humanity is significant to this doctrine. Now, the most logical place to start is the birth of Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecy found in Isaiah 7, verse 14. The coming of his birth is again proclaimed in Luke, but this time with more detail. So, from the Gospel of Luke, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Now, the actual birth of Jesus can be found in the next chapter, Luke chapter 2. It was a normal human birth, albeit the conception was quite different, coming not from man, but from the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, the second person of the triune God, the Christ Jesus, entered the world as a man, a human. Now, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he would experience many physical limitations that we would attach to his humanity. He would hunger. He would thirst. He would become tired. He would eventually even die, all of which are recorded by the authors of Scripture. There were also emotional distinctions pointing to Jesus's humanity. For instance, he cried at the death of his friend Lazarus. He expressed great joy and amazement at the faith of a Roman centurion, Roman soldier. He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane during a period of great stress. And there was even a point where he did not want to be left alone. However, there is one characteristic of mankind that Jesus did not have very significant to this doctrine. He had no sin. And Jesus himself was adamant about having no sin. He said this, which one of you convicts me of sin? John chapter 8, verse 46. No one responded. His sinlessness is taught all throughout scripture from the apostle Peter. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. From the Apostle John, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And from the Apostle Paul, he made him who knew no sin concerning Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So the testimony of the sinlessness of Jesus is abundant all throughout Scripture. But with this understanding of his human nature, the question often arises, could he have sinned? This is significant to the doctrine. Could Jesus have sinned? Did he have that ability? Well, Scripture really doesn't say. However, there are some indications that would answer this question. We know that Christ was tempted by Satan himself from the account found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, temptation of Christ. 
Yet he never submitted to those temptations. Now, it's safe to say today, a person who gives into temptation never really feels its full weight because he gave in. But the person who successfully resists temptation experiences the temptation in full. Essentially, the only way to experience temptation in full is by having the ability to sin, but refusing to do so. So did Christ have the ability to sin? It appears he did. Otherwise, the temptations he experienced would have been meaningless. The author of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Now, there is one final critical point concerning the person of Christ. He is both God and man equally at the same time. I'll say that again. He is both God and man equally at the same time. This is very significant to the doctrine of Christ and very significant to the Christian worldview overall. To frame the unity, if you will, of Jesus's nature in the form of a question, we might ask, how is he able to be both God and man at the same time fully? Well, The best theological answer I can provide, I have no idea how he did that. It is known only to God. However, it is not as if God all of a sudden stopped being God and became a man. We know that the Logos, the Word, the second person of the triune God always existed. From the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. So as God wrapped himself in flesh in the incarnation, the word became two distinct natures that could not be separated as they exist in perfect harmony in Jesus. Again, how did this happen? The Bible simply doesn't say. It just says it did. But there is a point it does make is what happened? There was an emptying from the Apostle Paul concerning the incarnation of Jesus. Paul says, emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So the Greek word here for empty is kenosis, and it's rightly translated as emptied. But what was emptied? Well, the general understanding of this chapter of Philippians, the whole context of this chapter, indicates that Jesus emptied himself only of the glory and privileges of heaven, but not his divinity, as many suggest. Essentially, he put them aside, the glory and privileges of heaven. We get a a clearer picture of this during his transfiguration in Matthew, when his glory was uncovered. Matthew says this, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Matthew 17, verse 2. I think R.C. Sproul put it best concerning the unity of the person of Christ. He said, God cannot stop being God for a moment and still be God. This is a biblical truth. God does not change. From the Old Testament, for I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. This is why Christianity has continually professed that the human nature of Jesus is completely human, while simultaneously the divine nature of Jesus is completely God. From the Apostle Paul, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. So what are the 
results of this? What are the effects of both the divine and human natures of Jesus? Let's take a brief look at just a few, because there are many. We know that in the Old Testament, priests were representatives from man to God, priests were, while prophets were representatives from God to man. Therefore, as Jesus is God, we can have true knowledge of God in Jesus without any human mediators. We can be assured of the promise of redemption through his atoning death. The infinite God, the author of all things, who did not have to die as a sacrifice in fulfillment of his own law, did just that. Very significant. Jesus also showed us the perfect example of humanity. So he is the standard we should look at and not ourselves on how to live lives pleasing to God. Jesus himself experienced all that any one of us might ever encounter. As a result, he can sympathize with any circumstance we might have. Again, this is just to mention a few. There are many. Now let's take a look at a, a brief look at the work of Christ through his ministry. In doing so, we must first know the role Jesus played as second person of the triune God. Now there is what might be considered, that many actually do consider, a very puzzling statement from Jesus in the gospel according to John. It goes like this. Jesus says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. John 14 verse 28. This really should not be confusing. What Jesus said is exactly what he meant. He is in one of his duties, subordinate to the Father. Remember one uh, basic concept of the triune nature of God from our, our first season. All three persons of the triune God exist equally as eternal beings, meaning that they are all of the same essence. However, there are distinctions made between the three persons. One example of this, one such distinction, we see in the work of redemption through Jesus. He is subordinate to the Father in his work of redemption, yet he is fully God. I wanted to touch the surface of this point as we look at the work of Jesus, which is a critical point to the doctrine of Christ, his work, what he did. So when we speak of the work of Jesus, we're specifically speaking of the gospel of God. The, the good news from God to mankind. The first aspect of this good news is the incarnation, often referred to as the humiliation. It is when God became flesh and entered the world of men, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. Only begotten in Greek is the word monogenes, meaning the only exact representation. It also implies that it's not something new, but something that always was. Now, this period of humiliation covered the time from the moment of his birth through to his final moments on the cross. His teaching during this period was paramount. Teachings on the kingdom of God and how to live lives pleasing to God. He taught about his fulfillment of the law and a deeper sense of its meaning. He taught about the sinful condition of man and the perfection of God and how to reconcile the two. He taught through miracles. He taught through parables. He taught through his own examples. And he taught how salvation came by the grace of God through him. Just to mention a few. Now, the second part of the gospel of God is the death of Jesus. His death was, of course, a condition of his humanity. And he became destined to die, but 
for a purpose. This good news from God was that his exact representation in the flesh as the Christ Jesus would suffer death, the result of sin, but not his sin, ours. His death meant that Jesus is the only Savior this world will ever have. He was the only one capable of such a sacrifice, and the only way to eternal life is through him. Now, the third portion of the gospel of God and the work of Christ emphasizes Jesus' death was not the end, but the beginning through his resurrection, often called the exaltation. Now, the Bible teaches us that the end point of sin is death. From Paul, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. However, in Acts, the apostle Peter would go on to conclude that Christ's victory over sin was symbolized by death's helplessness in holding him. He could, he could not be held in the grave from Peter. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Acts chapter 2 verse 24. And we should take great care at this point in viewing the resurrection of Jesus as simply a physical matter. Rather, it was his triumph over sin and death that was so significant. He symbolized the freedom he offered from sin's curse and his bearing of sin by the will of the Father. This vividly emphasizes the biblical truth he spoke in comfort to his apostles earlier. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, verse 6. Now let's look at the final point of the gospel of God and one often overlooked concerning the work of Christ, his ascension to heaven from Luke. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51. God is a being not limited by physical things of this world. So we cannot merely reach him by moving ourselves from one point to another. It requires a spiritual change, being born from above, being born again, and resurrected from the penalty of sin, which is death. This is the significance of Jesus' ascension. He left behind the physical and emotional conditions of this world just as we will. In addition, his ascension meant that there was going to be a coming of the Holy Spirit, a condition necessary to the cause of Christ within every believer. It indwells us. And Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, a position of power, and in constant petition on our behalf for all who believe. From the author of Hebrews. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Folks, this is a very brief overview of the person and work of the Christ Jesus. Christianity is not about buildings, monuments, sacraments, denominations, or dare I say, even spiritual manners of worship. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about an amazing person who is both fully God and fully man, and his work is the hope of all mankind. His indwelling presence is obvious in the lives of believers through a power that strengthens our faith, humbles us before God, and is at the center of how we view the world. This person is the Holy Son of God, the Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. 
We pray that you are all strengthened by these biblical truths revealed to us all through the work of the Spirit. Folks, if you want God to speak to you, simply read your scripture. For in these last days, he speaks only through his Son. If you've enjoyed these messages, please subscribe so you will continue to receive biblical truths each and every week. God bless you all. And next week on Brand of Man, we will discuss the biblical teaching, which brings our knowledge of God to a personal level through his active work within the lives of every believer. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. 